Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuels. And with the new Bowsers at Queensland Raceway, it's never been easier to source your racing fuel trackside. Elf Race 102 is imported racing fuel direct from Europe. Offering power and protection, the Elf Race 102 is a popular fuel with racers seeking gains over pump fuel. Improve your lap times with Elf Race 102. Racefuels.com.au for all your fuel at the racetrack. This is the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast and your hosts, Darren Smith and Gary O'Brien. Well, welcome race fans back to the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast. A big shout out to Race Fuels. Boy, they have been busy. They've had drifting at QR. They have had so much stuff happening at Sydney Motorsport Park, a state round and uh, drifting and uh, every other event at SMP. Phillip Island's been alive and they were at Calder of all places on the weekend. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, if you've joined us for every episode so far, well done and thank you. You've been very, very loyal listeners and I hope you continue to join Myself and uh, my partner in crime, Gary O'Brien, who has been up on the mountain. He's been at the Gold Coast. I'm not going to give him too much more of a shake-up on that because I've been to Calder. The mountain yes. and the Gold Coast are contrasting to Calder. Yeah, thank you, Daz. It's good to be back um, with another podcast. And uh, I want to hear more about uh, whether you actually got a rotary out and went around the Thunderdome. No, I didn't. And we will move on from that rapidly. Because um, although we have got an awesome guest coming on and uh, uh, a world competitor and strangely enough on a grassroots racing podcast, um, Gaz, and we'll touch this at the end when we're talking results and things, Mr. 12 times, Tony Riccadello, I doth my hat to you and your race team and the whole family because he had them all there on the Gold Coast on the weekend, didn't he? Yeah, next one will be a baker's dozen, won't it? Yeah, yeah. And who knows, they're... They've bought out some big guns to try and stop him from winning them, and uh, he he just hangs in there, doesn't he, for, for getting the next one. Certainly does. Let's get into uh, our guest for episode number 37, Gaz. Looking forward to this. Yeah, uh, grassroots, well, that's where he started, uh, on the rallying scene, and a lot of it will be about his rallying exploits, not only in Australia, but in in the Asia-Pacific world, also in uh, England or Britain, Great Britain, we should say, as well as as done the transition to a bit of uh, tarmac rallying and tarmac racing. And these days, he's a TV presenter. He's Dean Herridge. Gaz and Daz, great to join you here on your podcast. Uh, How are you both? Oh, fantastic, Dean. Great to see your smiling face. It's still uh, early in the day in Perth. Very good, Dean. Great to be here. here, mate, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's how Adelaide gets to 1983 then, is it? Yeah, exactly right. Well, there you go. Dean, thank you so much for uh, in the middle of your workday or near the end of your workday, taking the time to chat to us here on the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing podcast episode number 37. You may ask before you do why it got to number 37. We just thought we'd start at number 37 and then work work our way back to one and go, well, that's all right. We've done 37 of them. I'm wrapped that I'm even in, rated in the 100, mate, and that you guys, uh, you know, the legends that you are in motorsport would even have a chat to me, so. 
We'll have him on again, Gaz, I reckon, in 12 months. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll do a part two. Pumping, he's pumping your tyres already, isn't he? Oh, no, he's referring to both of us. You know, and <laughs> maybe we just hand over the microphone to him and he can interview the two of us. So that, maybe, that's, maybe that's episode 38. Well, he is something of a renowned uh, interviewer, isn't he? We'll well, work yeah, with him well, this I'm, year. I'm sure we'll get to that. I'm sure we yeah. will definitely get to that. Dean, uh, our first question to everyone that joins us is... Um, um, and to many, it's probably going to be pretty obvious with you, but how, where, when, what was your first memory of motorsport, whether it be uh, your, I guess, where you've made your name and you're living in the rally stage or a speedway or a racetrack? When, what's your first memory? First memory of motorsport in general was probably the introduction that I had with Dad. Dad did motocross, did tunnel boats, did offshore powerboat racing. He's never had any money because he's done all these weird, wonderful things. And got involved in rallying when I was like year seven at school from memory, like 10 years old. That's a 1600. I remember being in the back of the service wagon, a Gemini wagon that his mate owned and we're on the, doing the rally together. And it probably where that came from. Um, obviously you can't do rallying until you have a civil road license to be able to transport between stages. So I didn't get my taste of rallying until I was 17, which was still quite young. But we did go to the Wanneroo Raceway. I remember seeing the likes of, you know, Peter Brock, not quite Alan Moffat, although I was a bit of a Moffat fan as a kid watching on the television. But Jim Richards and Longhurst and all like Dick Johnson, all those sorts of people. So I actually wanted to be a touring car driver, would you believe? Um, but worked out that was one going to cost a hell of a lot of money to try and crack it with those guys. And, uh, you know, obviously with having a dad who was successful and particularly when, you know, he won a couple of state titles and when he won his two national titles, in like 92 and 93, I was like year 11, year 12 at school. So starting to pay attention to cars and driving and things like that. So like a lot of people, second generation is the short answer. It is actually the short answer, isn't it? The second generation going along yeah. with with dad or uh, uncle or whatever it, it, it might be. In that, I guess, that first and early exposure to motorsport with your dad and the, the rallying scene, um, what was the first time you got behind the wheel, whether it be not, not necessarily the competition, but you ever, you remember sitting behind the steering wheel of something and going, wow, I can just see over there. Well, you are quite tall, so you could probably see over the steering wheel. <laughs> I still can't see over the steering wheel. Not, so not in my seat position anyway, but <laughs> making car noises and all that sort of stuff like yeah. we all did as kids. Well, definitely did that. And we were lucky. I grew up in a regional center called Northern about an hour out of Perth and we had 10 acres, which wasn't a lot, but on that 10 acres, dad ran the livestock transport business that he ran at the time. We had a you know, bit of a you know, five, uh, five acres at the back that I could run around in. And we had a little Toyota Corolla. And essentially, that's how I learned to, to drive. Um, actually, it wasn't my dad who gave me my first driving lesson, would you believe? It was actually my nana, his mum, out uh, mushrooming, of all things, in a Land Cruiser. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but I would, at that stage, move anything. If dad wanted the car reversed out, if he wanted something done, I would do it you know i love driving cars being in it i soon worked out that it wasn't actually that hard to get fuel for these cars but mum and dad made it hard because otherwise i'd just burn a tank of fuel on a weekend cover all the neighbors you know clotheslines with dust and stuff so <laughs> i had a touch point on cars and four wheelers and stuff at that point but not in any real competition as such i think dad was probably right at the prime of some of that when i was doing this and either right or wrong said be a kid, concentrate on your school, and when you've done that, we'll make some stuff happen. And that might have been an excuse because he was busy, but that came through. And ultimately, when I did leave school and you know, I worked on 
the CBH, the CBH grain bins to raise some money. We built a rally car basically when I was 17 and whatever else. So um, that's my memory of driving around the back paddock, probably going too fast. Um, there's a few stories in the background of the, the Snap-on Tools dealer at the time, a guy called Gordon Douglas, would come to Dad's property, probably because Dad would spend too much money on tools, at the end of a Friday, and I'd be back from school, and he remembers me running around the back paddock and that's actually how I got an introduction to Snap-on Tools, who supported us in my younger days. And would you believe to this day, Gordon's part of our service crew and been with me the whole career, off and on, depending on what we've done, but runs with us at Maxwell Motorsports. So there's lots of cool touch points there that I, I have as memories, I guess, early on. Now, there is also another sport that you had to you had to fight rallying off because you were, you were chasing the... the the uh, the ashes. You wanted to go and play cricket, and you had a you had a bit of a a bit of a stint playing cricket there for a while too, didn't you? Geez, you're uh, you've done well on your research, mate. We obviously spent too much time together. Uh, well, as a, as a kid, it was field hockey in winter because my family did that. Um, wasn't talented enough for football; and it was too rough for me. And then summer was uh, basketball, but I loved cricket as well, um, particularly in primary school. Um, but ultimately, you know, probably wasn't good enough, et cetera, same as basketball and things. So uh, there was never probably an opportunity for me to be professional, but I did when I was younger, you know, like eight years old and went to the Wacker for the first time. And I'm pretty sure I wore yellow pants and the one-day yellow jersey. I thought if they're short, I could actually jump the fence and play. <laughs> uh, and you go waiting for one of those opportunities, which was never going to happen. Oh, and warmed just, up, warmed up on the field. Yeah, yeah, I'd done the full birth years and I was practising my bowling down the aisles of the Woolworths with my mum, you know, embarrassing. You know, I, I did, that was my sport and, you know, a touch point on, you know, dopey little things that come to mind. My nana, who taught me to drive, was a young nana and she played golf with us and she played cricket and I always wondered why she'd never run. But as you get older, you know, she could just smack fours and sixes and just stand at the other end and I'd be <laughs> scampering for singles and stuff. So I have these great memories of my nana who would play, you know, sport with us. But I think just going sideways, you know, to be at the elite level, let's say cricket, you have to be as good as the people in the national team and work your way through the ranks. There was probably opportunities, and it's becoming harder now with the way that we're regulated with sport and bits and pieces and the rules. But back when I did the WRC, a World Rally Championship here in Perth, provided you had the right licence, the right car spec, et cetera, and fit the categories, you could enter and be in the same rally as the Sebastian Loves, the Carlos Sainz, the Colin McRae's, which no other sport I know can you be on the same start list. You know, you don't get a Guernsey in Formula One or even touring cars at the time or basketball at that level where you essentially, never going to beat them, but compete against them. And rallying was one of the few sports where, particularly Australians, when we went and entered that event, competed against the world's best, which was cool. So the way you jumped away from cricket there, cricket obviously broke your heart and then you you you, you pursued the rallying. Yeah, the rallying yeah very early on. I knew I wasn't going to be good enough. <laughs> so so um, Nana taught you to drive in the Land Cruiser, picking mushrooms in the back of the five acres where the trucks and the livestock are. What um, what was then the first, I guess, competitive stage you, you fronted up at? First outing... Um... Once again, dad busy, travelling away, being a driver. We had a, an ex-Phil Myers Toyota Corolla, which was caged out in bits. And I guess before I could, once again, I still don't have my licence at this stage. There was a Tarmac Rally Sprint Series, which was held in a place called Quinana here, um, you know, in the southern suburbs of Perth. And at that stage, I was, you know, uh, close to being able to come up to Perth and dad was starting Maximum Motorsport. So I am about 16-odd. And we entered that and he thought, well, to give us a gauge on how he goes, 
he put Glenn Duncan on board. Now, Glenn's actually the nephew of Ross and the son of Jeff Duncan, who's quite famous and won, you know, state titles. And he and I shared a car together. So my very first competitive outing against the clock and, you know, properly entering was in this sort of bright fluoro and yellow, uh, sorry, bright fluoro Exfil Myers Corolla doing a tarmac rally sprint of all things in Quinana before we then, you know, I think he returned serve and I did an autocross. And my very, very first rally, I was on my P-plates. Um, I remember the number 43, front-wheel drive Lantra. It was a story to why I was in a Lantra of all things. And um, that was, like I said, basically um, fresh out of school, but, you know, having my license and away we went. I guess he lent you a Lantra, did he? <laughs> well, no. In actual fact, the funny story was my very first rally car, that Lantra, was left-hand drive. And it was brand new at the time because Hyundai Korea sent two cars out to do adverts or advertisement in the middle of, the, of Australia you know, obviously doing the advert using our country. And rather than send them back to Korea, probably going, well, why on earth would we do that? We'll just leave them with the local distributors who, of course, can't do anything with a left-hand drive rally car or left-hand drive road car. So the local distributor in WA basically went, oh, I've got these cars. They're probably only good for rallying and did a goodness knows how cheap the deal was for my old man. And at the time, he just sort of finished with Subaru because we're talking like 1994. And the team was disbanded at that point and did a deal to go, Rob, if you drive it in one event, we'll sell you this car cheap. And we built it up. So I actually cut my teeth on a front-wheel drive, very new model, Hyundai Lantra, which was left-hand drive. So I was should have been destined for Europe based on that, but didn't quite, didn't quite make it. But that was the thing I learned, well, the thing that Dad instilled in us was you don't learn anything walking out of stages. It was a reliable car that was built very well, had good suspension, but no real power upgrades. And it was about just learning to drive and doing kilometres. And in those first years, I was doing Clubman Cup and state rounds and did my very first Rally Australia. And I think at once, one place there was a stat that I was the youngest ever you know, driver to compete in a world championship because I had three weeks off my P-plates at that time, 18 years and three months or whatever it was, doing the World Rally Championship. I went off the road and lost 30 minutes early on, which put me at the back. And, of course, I thought my throat was cut and wanted to pull out of the rally. Mum and dad said, pull your head in, and I did. And for the next three days, did a WRC rally, which was the best thing I ever did because I basically did a season's worth of rallying in three days without worrying about whether I was coming X, Y, or Z. And the very next weekend with a half-busted car, won my first Clubman rally and won the championship in a year. So it's sort of this, all these formulations of things that sort of happened in that first year to come together to in this front-wheel drive car that I was learning in. Yes, the your your question there was how did you go in that first rally? What was your what was yeah, your well, result? Um, I think I was first front wheel drive seventh outriders, I think, in in the Clubland Cup. That was my first rally. Remember being ultra nervous. I mean, it's one I I've had great opportunities, obviously, because of being a second generation driver, as there's been lots of people in our sport that do that. It's obviously a leg up. It was actually pretty hard in the early days, because I mentioned that I've got this brand new Hyundai Lantra where other people I'm competing against have got 15, 20-year-old Corollas or, you know, whatever the rear-wheel drive cars they got at the time were sort of escorts, right on that a lot, of be a, le- a lot of escorts around there. Yeah, escorts and daddos yeah. and things. So people yeah. are going, hang on, why does Dean Erich get a bloody, you know, newish type <laughs> car and whatever else? And so it's actually quite hard. I, and I'm not a mechanic's backside and never was and didn't want to be. So there was some tough times early on where I didn't probably think about it. I obviously wanted to do it more than I remember because there was probably lots of times when dad's ex-team members and bits and pieces sitting there going, well, your bloody son's a lazy little bastard who won't work on the cars and bits and pieces and I'm getting his leg up. And I'd go to the workshop and hate every minute of it, working on the car. But probably had been paying attention enough 
to all the other things that I'd watched my dad do over a decade or so, you know, from when I was in year seven all the way through to formulate a pretty good feel for the sport and how it worked and how I guess even touch points with, you know, for my dad, you know, running with a manufacturer, I was lucky enough to go to one rally on the East Coast, the Alpine Rally, and sit in the back of the marketing manager's car when I'm about 14, which happened to be Nick Senior, who ended up, you know, running that company. And you must listen and pick up on things. You don't even know what they mean at the time. But I did have one of dad's, uh, you know, very good friends and mechanics back in the day, a guy called John, or we, we call him Fats Little, who probably thought I was that lazy little bastard once upon a time and he was working on my car <laughs> and stuff. And many, many years later, when I'd probably proved my worth and the fact that I could probably okay steer a car over a beer or so, he did come up to me and say, uh, yeah, you actually probably learned a few things back then that we didn't give you credit for that probably helped my career and stuff. So there's all these little pockets, uh, I guess, you learn along the way. Big shout out to Fats Little. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did, did Dad ever have to take you aside and say, hey, you do need to come to the workshop a bit more or you do need to pull your head in or, hey, Dean, you just can't ride off my coattails or anything like that. But, I mean, what you've described, you're clearly not riding off the coattails. But, yeah, there, there is some advantage to second generation. I think it was – I knew I had to go to the workshop because I think you learn early on it's a team sport and you need people on side with you to try and go where you might want to go. You can't, you cannot do it on your own, whether it be in rallying, the co-driver, the people, the mechanics, the, your family, you can't, I don't believe you can succeed without the backing of a lot of those things. It's very hard to uh, indeed. So I knew I had to go to the workshop. So I'd go on a Saturday because of course I had a different job doing real estate settlements of all things as a, as an outside clerk, but, and then would go in on a Thursday night and do it. So I was doing some hard yards. I just didn't know what I was doing. You know, I'm not a mechanic. <laughs> Etc. Uh, and here we are running a motorsport business. But anyway, that's, yeah. that's they didn't. Um, we can they didn't get you. To, they didn't get you doing engine rebuilds or anything. No, 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 no. I was like cleaning up oil and stuff like that. I suppose I was lucky to be given the grinder at any point. Even then, they were having, <laughs> had eyes on me. And even to this day, as I show you my hands on the screen, if I get my hands dirty, the boys really wide over in the workshop. So, yeah, that's but the advantage. Like, that, that's the advantage of an audio-only podcast. Yeah. Is that, yes, yeah. he has got very clean hands. Very clean hands. <laughs> Um, but I think you sort of know, and I'd seen it from dad, you know, he had lots of mates and people that he leaned on and bits and pieces. So I think you knew the value of trying to get people on board and you had to try and show what you could do and where, um, the other thing about being a second generation driver is that you are sometimes right or wrongly given, if you don't like Rob Herridge, you automatically don't like Dean Herridge. If you sort of do like Rob Herridge, I might, you do get some stuff. So there's, there's far more positives and negatives, but there was some negative space in there early because you do get some opportunities, which I clearly the positives outweigh the negatives. But I feel like if I didn't really want it deep down, you would have bailed out and done something else. And, you know, I've only really worked that out many, many years later when the people come up to me and go, oh, you so much wanted to be a rally driver. You do this and you miss this party. And I used to do some of the things dad did, even though I was not professional, anything at that stage, he didn't drink for a month before a rally. So I just adopted that. So at even a young age, and we're going to the pubs and the bars with my mates and we're 18 and all that sort of stuff in Perth, I wouldn't drink. And I religiously didn't drink on Perth. I wasn't sneaking one in because that was my mindset to go, well, this is what my dad did and he's been successful. So I trained and went to the gym and didn't drink and took some of those things on board. And only my mates later go, Jesus Christ, you, you sacrificed a bit to do that. And at the time that didn't feel like a sacrifice at all. It is interesting being a whatever whatever sort of motorsport you're in of all the genres. It is about 1.5 percent of the time you actually get to use the the equipment, and then 98 and a half percent of the time is 
waiting. So when you do get to that 1.5% of the time, you you don't want to jeopardize no. in the 98, 98.5% of the time, you know, what you, you can do. And I, I totally get that mindset, you know, and it, be, it becomes diet, nutrition, it becomes training and, 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 you know, to, to now, mm. you know, the modern competitor also will use, uh, you know, some psychological training as well. Yeah. And to, you know, to jump forward, when Possum passed away, Subaru brought in a guy called Jeff Bond from the AOS, who I'd met previously doing a motorsport camp when motorsport hardly knew anything about diet, nutrition, and bits and pieces. I remember going on an AIS camp with with some, you know, Jason Brights and young Stephen Richards and Michael Guests and other people like that. You know, there was, you know, now look back and see where everyone's careers went. And that became, you know, he became a sports psych for us for the, the the rally team that went right the way through to Molly Taylor when she drove for the Subaru team. So, you know, those things became a really important touch point. And this was the advantage that my dad was bringing. I've never had a driving lesson from my dad ever. I think he's probably only sat with me five times in my life, either because he doesn't trust me or maybe we would we would <laughs> sit next to ourselves because we, we were awful passengers generally. But um, the thing he was good at, he said, this sport is 50% mental. You've got to have some skills and bits and pieces. But when we left the service park and I was young and the crew's getting pretty excited because the result's going pretty good and you know how far... He was just the calming voice on the way out, the, out, you know, the last guy in the window of the car as you reversed out to go corner at a time, concentrate on this, concentrate on that. So very early on, you, know, you were probably exposed to the fact that this sport's a big mental game as well. Has the um, the career has moved on from the the left-hand drive Lantra that Guesty didn't give you, but you got off the, <laughs> the local Hyundai guys? Um what was next? What was the next step after the, you know, you, you're all of you've taken that car to a WRC, like you could pull up, yeah. stump, pull up stumps and actually go back to the cricket club and concentrate on that career now. <laughs> well, would you believe that I had that car for a couple of years, won the Clubman Cup. The very next year at the Rally Australia, I did a pretty good job on the opening super special stage and the car did an alternator or something on the second stage. Back then you couldn't rejoin. Dad had uh, Maximum Motorsport, which was very new at the time, had a contract with you believe with Kia Motors who didn't exist as a you know as a as a manufacturer in Australia at the time to build and prepare a couple of production cars to do the championship. I guess that touch point then got me an opportunity in '96 to actually at only 19 years old to they offered me a steer in one of their cars in the Asia Pacific and I did Indonesia and New Zealand and Australia and that exposed me I guess to once again sort of these front wheel drive cars in international competition. Um, which lasted sort of the 12 months before we got another opportunity with Hyundai, which then saw us leapfrog into the ARC. And, you know, I've heard stories from the likes of, you know, we you know, it was a great battle pack back then. You know, we're talking late 90s when Possum and Neil were running World Rally cars, Ed was running around in Group N cars, the occasional Group A Mitsubishi. And this front-wheel drive F2 category was had like six manufacturers, or five manufacturers, six drivers, and we're talking the likes of Simon Evans and Brett Middleton and myself and Ross McKenzie and Lee Peterson. And I was the youngest of that group driving a Hyundai. And that's probably where I got those two years, particularly of uh, driving in the ARC that allowed us to you know, springboard the career a little bit more as we you know jump about over rather than take up 25 hours of your podcast. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess um, Dean, our, our listeners that, that, you know, that we have a lot of them from the beginning till now, uh, can look up Dean Herridge and read about the the time at Subaru and stuff like that. It's uh, digging down on the two years with with Hyundai. You're just talking about that 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 you've done that people, you know that that can't just Google it. 
uh, mm. that they like to hear about. And I, what I was about to say, I guess you got very used to traveling across Australia with a truck and a trailer and a rally car. You know, a week before everyone else was leaving home, you were packing up and heading heading east. Yeah, and back then I did drive across. I don't drive across much anymore. And my old man to this day, I don't know, he's done something ridiculous like 130 crossings cool. and all about motorsport. I probably tapped out at about 13 or 14. Um, but we did. You know, we were driving at the beginning Land Cruisers and then maybe a van and then we did get a truck and bits and pieces in the early days. And you, you're right. You know, you had to, that was something we had to factor in of travelling across the logistics of that, the time frame, the extra money, and to be involved in the national level. So, yeah, well, I get when people come to, uh, you know, the, the West Australian round of the championship, it's a big haul for people to make that effort. We had to do that in re in reverse. Five of the, you know, if there were six rounds, we were doing it five times. Mm -hmm. Probably lucky for us back then, we had not only the Forest Rally as a round of the ARC, but, of course, we had the World Rally Championship round. So, you felt like it sort of stabilised a bit that we had access to two great events, you know, one national and one, you know, world championship at the time. So it didn't seem like a bad place to be doing motorsport from it at that, at that point. Um, to touch on, you know, that Hyundai side of things. So when we first, you know, the Kia thing happened, we were actually looking, you know, once that deal had sort of finished and it had finished in 18 months or so, the actual, we were looking to buy a Subaru off Subaru themselves at that time and in present, which was, you know, fairly new uh, specs, uh, you know, an RA spec car. And we'd bought one off them and we were about to pick it up, or I did pick it up. And Hyundai come ringing again, this same guy who'd sort of offered up the left-hand drive car and young Dean Herridge was not doing a bad job in it, said, we've got this new front-wheel drive coupe coming. Would that or could that be a rally car? And we'd like to leverage off the Herridge name and, Anyway, based on that, we took on, you know, front-wheel drive bloody, you know, coupe, and he wanted to call it Team Heritage Hyundai, and he he had all the contacts to get the shirts and the things and the branding done, and this car looked magnificent, and that's sort of what we ran around in two years. We, of course, didn't have much budget, and he lent on a few supplies and things, so we over-invested the first year and, of course, did the national championship, and we are only doing one round at a time almost, to the point that the next year and Hyundai Australia had showed interest we went to the first round of the championship in Coffs Harbour without that deal being signed off. We'd approached them on, here's the budget we like, and we could do the national championship again. One of the stories that's never really been told because it didn't need to be told at the time was we had a meeting with Nick Senior and Subaru of Coffs Harbour at that rally because Possum had rocked up, and at that year, and we're talking like 1988 or something, he came on his own in a Group A car. There was no Group N car like he'd sort of had in the past with Greg Graham or one of the New Zealanders. So we looked at an opportunity with Subaru to become the second car. And at this stage, on 2021 or whatever it is, and it was myself and my co-driver, Glenn McNeil, for that year, and he just sort of stepped in with us on that front with Nick Senior, who was sort of the boss of Subaru, about, hey, for the rest of the championship, or what would the likelihood have been able to be running a second or a Group N car? Had a meeting. They he spoke to STI in Japan about obviously the possibility we only get you know cars slash parts for it. And when we got back to Perth, there was an offer I think faxed back in the day of a deal to be able to run as the second car to Possum Born. We had to be involved in the build, provide a couple of people, provide a bit of budget for it. And on the same day, or if not very close, my memory is the same day. We had the fax come back through from Hyundai that said we're on, we're prepared to sign the deal. And, of course, you're going, shit, we've over-invested <laughs> on this front. We've got this outlay of money that 
could be topped up and we could run with Hyundai. We've got to find another bucket load of money and go down this uh, Subaru route. And would you believe we knocked the Subaru deal back? The paid opportunity to be with Subaru and Possum, we knocked back to go down the Hyundai path. And that's why in 1988, our second year in that F2 category, um, Forest Rally was the next round. It was round two. And here's this young Cody Crocker who rocks up out of sort of nowhere. Going, oh, I've got a phone call from Nick Senior who said blah, 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 and why would you say no to that? And so in some ways, the the Cody opportunity was a one-off based on the fact that a bit of legwork had been done and he and his dad and his co-driver and you know Greg's father and stuff all got really involved and him and his mate Paul Kane, and they, they put it together and helped the whole deal come together. But it was a one-off at the time and he obviously took an opportunity and then another rally and another rally and, of course, formulated his own career, which is a different story. Many, you know, skipped forward past the Hyundai and I went to the UK and stuff. I eventually landed back at the ARC with my old man going, oh, my Lord, we're now spending our own money trying to drive the same car as Cody Crocker, who's now four years into his deal with Subaru, thinking we have totally made a mockery. You know, sham- this has been a shambolic decision-making system and Dad's about to fall on his ceremonial sword. And then you know, from that, anyway, the, the rest is history about where I went. But there were some critical junctures that could have gone either way and, and motorsport is about timing and we made what we thought was the best timing for us and maybe it was maybe i would have screwed up that opportunity and not got another one but um we didn't tell that story much and i think that was even a surprise to code back in the day who's still a very good mate of mine so the um was possum aware that you might have been coming on board in a second car at that stage um, I, I don't know specific. He would have done because obviously his team ran it. Yeah. And no doubt he would have looked at it and thought, what am I idiots the heritage are for knocking back that deal? Um, so because obviously it was his company and their legwork that would have put that second car together and bits and pieces. So, yeah, I have no doubt. And obviously Dad and he were teammates in 91, uh, sorry, 92, 93. So there were some touch points around Possum and bits and pieces mm. in those times. So I don't know if Dad and Possum got on uber well. And, you know, eventually I did join the team in 2002. And Possum was still running the team and he was, you know, the lead driver. When I joined that team, you know, Group N had just be, become the new formula for the Australian Championship. So, and that's when I joined on board after uh, knocking back a deal with Mitsubishi, ironically. So you, you just got <laughs> to knock back deals. Yeah, we're good at knocking back things, aren't we? Crazy. <laughs> but these days he doesn't miss a flight out of Perth. He's like, oh, we're off. Yeah, <laughs> come on, we go. Every sign, everything. Oh, we're on everything. <laughs> you, you just glossed over the fact that you went to Europe for four years. Was that four motors? Oh, not for four years, sorry. We So after the two years of the ARC, and like I said, we'd done our Hyundai deal. So we're now talking 99. And I'd had a few touch points in drive my old man's four-wheel drive car in state championship and won some rallies and bits and pieces I gained experience. Um, because of dad's time with Subaru and he did gravel notes for Possum back in New Zealand when he drove for them and therefore did gravel notes for for, um, for Colin McRae and, of course, Derek Ringer when they won in New Zealand in the legacy back in the day. So dad and Derek Ringer had become sort of reasonable mates. And at one point when Derek left Colin back in the day, he became a bit of a coordinator for M Sport Ford. So when the teams used to come to Perth for Rally Australia, Dad would be sort of the local contact to help M Sport out, sort of via Derek Ringer initially, and then John Millington and those sorts of people to do the logistics for the team to get them a workshop for a week or two, land and help with shipping coordinating and bits and pieces. So obviously through advice, Derek Ringer sort of we lent on him a little bit on well here's Dean's career and bits and pieces and. His suggestion at the time was, well, he's obviously got you know good experience on two years of front-wheel drive in F2 and being competitive in the national championship, and we sort of seen what he's done at Rally Oz. 
he said, you really got to, if you want to try and crack it over here, you've got to come over here. And obviously he was at the time co-driving for Martin Rowe with Renault in the McGann's, the F2 McGann's, because F2 was the major category in the UK. So it seemed like, well, we're doing F2 in Australia, although production-based, and these guys have got these fantastic, you know, big-winged, awesome front-wheel drive cars. You know, Vauxhall had a team and Renault had a team and Volkswagen had cars. And so I, we went to the UK and to lease a car was going to be uber expensive. So we actually, would you believe, freighted our Hyundai across to the UK and ended up doing the Vauxhall Rally of Wales and the Pirelli over there. You know, I stayed at, at uh, Derek's place in Scotland for a month or so and then, you know, lent on one of the M-Sport mechanics we got to know and we based the car from there. It was a bit of a disastrous run for us. We probably got what we needed out of it in regards to showing some pace because I actually went and did a zip karting test. Now, Zip's the company. Renault used to use them to test their drivers with on tarmac as a bit of a gauge and, you know, match fitness and stuff. So they had these cars for Tapio Laukinen and for uh, Martin Rowe. So I went along to the test and took uh, Tapio's car and Martin was there. And would you believe of all people, the young guy at the time who was running in the zip carts was a guy called Gary Pappert, whose course was the McLaren Junior Drive at one point. They sent me out with him basically going, this time chase him, this time he'll chase you, all to build a report card that they'd send back to Renault before they'd potentially offer you a run in their gravel McGann back in the day. So I went to Hoddleston and went to this kart track and did all that stuff and then flew back to Australia and was struggling with no money and all that sort of stuff. And the report back was, well, if this guy's never raced cars like he claims he hasn't, he's done a pretty good job. And I got offered a, right, we'll come back to the UK later in the year. We'll test you in the forest in the McGann. You're on the short list. I don't know, that was in my head going to be like uh, August or October. And in about, but he just prior to that, Renault pulled out of all world motorsport, including British touring cars and British championship. And it was like, you're kidding me. So the only bit I got out of that deal was, Renault, who were running in the UK, go, well, this is our last hurrah. We're doing okay in the World F2 Championship. We might go to the last round in Australia and see if we can win the championship. So guess who became the bunnies to bloody sort their logistics out? It was the guy who was trying to get a drive wheel. So we helped, you know, helped the team with logistics and find them a French chef because, of course, they're French. So that was the most important <laughs> bit was finding a, someone to cook for them. And um, <laughs> we basically had miscued, you know, at the end of the day, this potential opportunity to test with Renault and trying to do the British Championship, we then went back to, that's why I sort of made the flippant comment about in 2000, we've now come back to driving a Subaru Group N car, you know, and there's a little story prior to that, to do the Australian Championship as a privateer. And of course, at that point, Cody's got three years under his belt and we're sitting there going, well, that's not all gone the way we would have liked it to have gone. So, yeah. <laughs> But you've had a long relationship with Subaru from that point on. Whether it's oh, definitely, Gaz. And to be honest, the tipping point was, so we ran that year as a privateer and we obviously, you know, we won the privateers championship. We were just behind Code and Ed and the opportunity came up. I still to this day, it must have been Nick, I guess. Don't know how this deal came up. But in 2001, I got the opportunity to run with Les Walken. Now, that was the first time, I guess, for me to branch outside of Maximum and my dad and bits and pieces and I guess see how I went. And, and Les has got a history of doing that with plenty of good drivers from, you know, back in those days. He ran Ed Ordinsky, he ran Michael Guest, and he's gone on to run Buddy Cody and Eli and Molly and all these sorts of people. So, you know, even Simon Evans done some rallies with him. So I ran a year, you know, with basically Les Walkton. Um, still technically a privateer, I think. Not many people like that idea, but we ran Subaru signage and 
Um, but ran with Les and his team. Yeah, he had a great mob of uh, crew out of Tassie and things that I've still made so, today. So qualifying for manufacturers points, of course. Ah, uh, and I, yeah, I think that's why it was probably. Yeah, we had we were the junior team, I think. And so to be still classified as privateers, probably pissed off the likes of Stewie Reed and stuff. We were trying to win the championship against us, and that probably set up to know well. Let's see how he goes in a different team environment, run with Les, and Les was great to run with, et cetera. And at the end of that year, we got an opportunity, along with a whole host of other young guys, Spencer Lowndes and Mark Thompson and Scotty Petter, to go to Canberra and test for Rallyart. And so, you know, we we went there. Um, we got to all, I think we've spanned over two days. You know, I think Stephen Shepard was in there, a few others. And... We got an Evo 6, which I think they were going to Evo 7s. We all had Dave Body as the co-driver, and we basically tested in Canberra. My one recollection about that was that at the end of your test, you got a chance of sitting with Ed Odinsky. Now, I'm not a great passenger, as I said before. He was Mr. Smooth. He'd won all these Group N titles. He's in the Rally Art car. And I've got to say, I got out of that car and went, holy shit, if that's smooth, bloody, I'm... It was, in my opinion, so rough because he was so fast and hard on the car that my brain's gone, is this how fast they drive it? We, you know, we're only going to test run, and off the dip, he hit it flat, and the, the sump guard, I'm sure, touched. He smacked the bank with the left rear. He either was having a bad run with me, or I'm going, wow, this is another level of commitment that you don't have or I hadn't seen as a privateer. So, you know, my front bumper would last a season. When you become professional, those things are accessories. You know, if you ain't trying hard enough, then those, you know, you, you don't bring us back a good car if it's bloody, if it's immaculate. They're yeah, commodities. Be- that's what you replace every, every, yeah. Really, yeah. And where I'm going with that, Gaz, is at the end of that year, I actually did get an opportunity. Mitsubishi said it was with Bob Riley. We, second car with Ed Odinsky, it's a paid gig. You got to move to Sydney, work at Rally Art. That was probably their deal. Uh, and I would have done that, no problem. But I did go to Subaru, who, like I said, we had this light arrangement with with Les, and said to Nick Senior, "Look, I've been offered this deal with Mitsubishi. It's pay. I'm not batting one against the other. My preference would be to stay with Subaru, but I think it's the next phase of my career is to take up a you know what we call a works role." And uh, Nick, I don't know how long later, came back and said, "Look, we can't pay you, but would we'd offer you a third car? We'd create a third car in the team with Possum and Cody if you'd run with Subaru." So I took the non-paid opportunity at that point with Subaru. Here we go again. And I thought it would have better longevity. And so guess what? Finally, boys, finally the slow learner, 2001, uh, with with Les, signed the deal in 2002, and I've been with the brand ever since, so 23-odd years later. So maybe it was meant to be. Maybe that's the way it had to be. I'm not, that's what you got to go with. So I, I wanted to touch particularly on uh, with Subaru that you actually did some road races, uh, particularly the Bathurst 12 hours uh, starting in 2007 when the whole uh, the 12 hour was revived uh, in uh, after it uh, was uh, put aside in 1994 and you actually finished second outright mm. and first in class and interestingly enough the two co-drivers that in that event were Cody Crocker who you know quite well and uh, Chris Atkinson who was racing wrc at the time I yeah think. he was yeah. so this was how, our, did, how did that come to all uh subaru had after 10 years of success in the australian rally championship pulled out big news pulled out of um australian rally championship they wanted crocker and i to stay with the brands crocker got offered an opportunity to continue on with les walkton with support and, and there's a story that he can tell about that about going to the asia pacific 
Have you got his number? Yeah, but that's it. He can be on Grassroots uh, episode 99 just to shoot him off. Why <laughs> um, well, so soon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Harriet. And so they actually said, Dean, we'd love you to stay with the brand and we actually think you'd be good at tarmac driving. I'm like, are you shitting me? I've never done tarmac anything. So, like, we think your style will shoot will suit tarmac. And I'm like, wow, I've only done a few tarmac state. I must be... That must be that smoothness I was talking to you about. Not fast, but smooth. <laughs> so we'd like you to head up a potential like tarmac target. Well, the, the other thing is on tarmac, you've got to keep the front bumper on, and they knew you were good at that. That's exactly right. <laughs> there See, it is. Exactly that. So that's why I went off and did Target Tasmania and Target West and bits and pieces like that. So in, in, that was in 06, actually. And then so obviously I had this taste of doing tarmac sort of uh, tarmac rallying and bits and pieces. And then built two cars with Possible and a lot of the same team that had the rally team, took two cars to Bathurst. And I think their idea was built around what we at that time called Subaru Motorsport and was there an opportunity to build cars for customers and be involved and all that sort of stuff. Um, long story short, that meant we landed at the Bathurst 12 in, in 07 with two brand new cars, um, one car for us. Well, there were six drivers. They never really knew which combination they were going to go for, but obviously the three Rally drivers at the time, as you say, Akko was with the World Rally Team at that point. Cody and myself, who were still with it and around the brand. And then uh, Crompton, Denya and Alajajan were the other three. And so they were faster than us in the practices and the testing and everything else. Uh, I don't know, they qualified seventh and we were 11th or something like that in our Subaru. The bit that we probably got right, we all got paired. We all got obviously teamed together as the, as the rally guys. And we were learning on the run and each test session we're trying something different. It was our first foray into it. Um, we probably, because of our production slash group N rally time, sort of knew how to drive these cars and what they would or wouldn't take. So even though that other car, car number seven, was faster, they lost brakes. I think someone ended up in the wall at some point. Uh, no- I think they ended up, I think Daniel was at the wheel and they had a rear diff go yeah. at one stage there because I remember walking up there and he was still sitting in the car going, yeah, what can you do? Yeah, and uh, so I felt like we were punting around. To me, it was awesome. It was my everything that I'd watched on TV. It was an Endura Bathurst, the screens on the telly, you you sharing this car, all that sort of stuff. So it was very cool from that point of view. I'm told since that we're unlucky not to win it. I, I don't recall it at the time, but supposedly, you know, we got a bit dudded on a yellow flag or a safety car or something, or some decision was made and we ended up second, which. Probably was to, I'm pretty sure we all had a target on our back, as in the whole pit lanes going, don't let those freaking rally guys on their first attempt win the fucking 12 hour. Sorry, I can't swear. Probably better beat that bit out. But, <laughs> but we didn't know it at the time. We just bop along having a great time thinking, how good is this? This road is six Ks of a rally road that forms a racetrack. And I can see why drivers around the world love it. And you have to respect it. And I'm sure you've never, you never do a perfect lap around there. But we used to get asked, well, does, what do you think of the road? What do you think of this? It didn't scare us from a fact because we run on roads that don't have barriers and bits and pieces and we're used to going down dips and, you know, big in- inclines and stuff. It's just a cool bit of road and to be able to drive a car in amongst other cars. So I think in actual fact, Akko had done one road race in Europe somewhere. Code probably did nothing because he's lazy. And I did one <laughs> race in, in Perth to get my P-plates up. So we got an exemption to do it in the first place. So, um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. So. Did you have to re-educate the, um, or did the, did the the race team, the circuit guys, have to re-educate you to work in lap times, not seconds per kilometre? 
I knew you'd bring that because you love a technical <laughs> form of reference, don't you? That I'm, I'm still scratching my head about that. Whole thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll sit down properly with you another time, mate, and talk you through the seconds per K thing. You know what the, the weirdest thing was? You had an engineer speak to you maybe once or twice a lap, maybe, depending on the reception. Being in the car on your own with no one talking to you was actually an odd feeling because <laughs> you're six kilometers. I'm on my own with my own thoughts and gear changes and cars around me without someone saying left four, 50, 100, max crest two, you know, whatever. So that this eerie silence was actually very foreign being in the car. So you have to, you have to talk me in, boys. Like you keep talking yeah, yeah, me across correct. the top. Yeah, yeah. But it was yeah. cool to. You know, you press, you know, press the button, talk to the end. Now, I remember at one point them saying, hey, this is the lap time. Do you think you could do this or that? And I'm going, we could, but I think the tyres would, you know, would, would start to heat up a little bit. So that was the different element to get used to was, of course, the communication with the team and trying to do some of that. I think we had a radio issue at one point and bits and bobs, sure part of what you do with those enduro races. So, Let's jump then, back to the the, the dirt, the, the rally thing and, and with Subaru and what was... Uh, nothing short of the behemoth of Southeast Asian rallying was was the Subaru rally team led by Possum with you and Cody. The That was some heady times. Yeah, and you don't know it at the time. I actually have people come and talk to me now that, you know, we still obviously have a touch point with the Australian Championship doing some of the coverage and, you know, our company runs a, a car or two. Um, it gets referred to, which is weird to me, is, oh, what was it like to be involved in the golden era of Australian rallying or one of the golden eras? And I think then when you look back over the last 45 or 50 years of the Australian Championship, there are pockets where it looks like, you know, the works Daxon teams and Ford teams and Greg Cars and Ari Bartons, you know, Colin Bonds and stuff, George Furies, Ross Duncan, these huge names that, you know, um, I know from growing up or hearing the stories about. And now people talking to you about this time when, those, you know, Subaru and Mitsubishi and Ford and, and you know, all those sorts of Toyota and Neil Bates and Simon Evans, it was an awesome time. You know, the Petters team had their own, you know, they could be far, you know, Scotty's a, a champion now and stuff like that. There was times, you know, Scotty and I joke with Scott Petter that I think there was a rally in Adelaide where I think there was 16 seconds between the top five. And, you know, that that goes through cycles where, you know, there's, mm-hmm. you know, almost a minute gap sometimes on some ARC rounds back in the day. It's, it's heated up now as we speak today, which is awesome. So you didn't know any different. That's what it was. And you just had to fight hard and if you had a spin you were pretty much out for the day but you know you do now look back and you think of those names that we 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 ran with and did and competed against it was a really cool time and probably also good because back then the rules were you know Mitsubishi had a car Subaru had a car that was governed quite well there wasn't you know sort of I think one of the reasons Subaru pulled out was as it started to open up and we were trying to keep manufacturers in you know, Subaru were concerned on the level of trying to almost parody in a way uh, from that point of view. So it was a cool time. And those cars fit directly into the World Championship Group N. So, you know, some of my highlights, and I was probably better at WRCs, ironically, because I probably didn't wasn't outright brave enough or fast enough, but I could run consistently quick for without making too many mistakes. And I think that's why my international results were quite good. And we went to Japan and China and places like that is because to punt one of those cars around and, you know, you would see on my very light CV that, you know, winning New Zealand Group N. And I only did an interview about that not long ago because that was 2004, so nearly 20 years ago. You know, the names of the guys in Group N back then, you know, and we were, you know, they're, they're big names in rallying in general. You know, it was Latvalas and the McCrays and, you know, Alagirjan and, sorry, and um, uh, NASA Alatea and those sorts of people, Legato, just names you think back now that you go, wow, they've gone on and done some things. So it's pretty cool to be around that era. 
The 2004 rally in Canberra, I'm I'm trying to think, was that when you were you won that rally? Yeah. The APRC, and I'm trying to think of that was when Neil and Simon had the Corollas in the, that in. Yeah, so I think that particular year they did have the Corollas, what they called the NP cars or the yes, prototype yeah. car. I so, remember being at the mine shaft, and Simon had given us some red T-shirts that might have said Toyota on them. And amongst amongst the eight and a half thousand people that were at the mine shaft, which is the most spectacular piece of rally road for a spectator, I would never want to drive across it, over it. Um, we were the only four people in red shirts. Everyone else was in blue jackets, and it was cold, <laughs> and we wanted jackets, but we thought, no, we've got these t-shirts. We'll represent. But that was just massive. The the, yeah, so the they... blue army, as they were called. Yeah, they didn't like being called Smurfs. I think I joked about that one time. They didn't like Smurfs. <laughs> oops. <laughs> oops. <laughs> um, yeah, because they would run off the back. It was supported by Subaru. It was a rally, Subaru rally of Canberra back in the day. And they did. They ran the Subaru Festival and people would come from particularly Sydney and Melbourne and they'd join. And, you know, I remember doing a, a show and shine on one of the evenings outside the War Memorial where these guys lined up and we did talks and they had a tent at Fairbairn Park and, it was a massive thing. Like, that was huge for the brand to do that. It was a really engaging time for Subaru owners, et cetera. And at that point, the WX had only been around 10 years. Um, so, you know, from that point of view, that was, um, you know, becoming an iconic car in itself and it sort of really lent to the our language as a brand in regards to symmetrical all-wheel drive and boxer engines. And this almost, you know, we were. We were running what you could buy on the street, rally eyes that we cage and suspension. And here we are taking on at that time, Asia Pacific's best or the, and so that was a, yeah, form part of what you're talking about with this sort of, um, you know, great era for us. And the mind two things, Yeah. Two things I could talk about. Just sorry for jumping in there. I agree with you about the mine shaft. It's very spectacular. And also I'm not surprised that you got a free t-shirt out of it. It's the wrong colour. <laughs> I might have an old blue one, mate. I'll, I'll fire one of those. Off. <laughs> it was actually Evo actually gave them to us because they the branding being the same company. The branding on the sleeve was BF Goodrich, and they'd moved to the Michelin branding. Ah, so they were like, so oh, you've got to chuck all the Goodrich stuff out. That's got to go. That's got to go. You did too, yeah. Michelin I mean, did, did a bit of branding. Yeah. So did you end up with the right branding or the wrong branding? No, we had the wrong branding. Of yeah, course. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't but be that well associated with it. But it was a free shirt, so it was. Yeah. It was a free yeah. shirt, yeah. and he froze to death. Had pneumonia after, but yeah, yeah that's right. It was freezing. <laughs> it was absolutely freezing. But the beer was cold too, so it was just matching the temperature. Perfect. Okay. But yeah. the mine shaft is an. Int- I mean, I remember seeing photos from the mine shaft. It's had a few evolutions, not not the gradient or the drop, but I think back in the day, I've seen shots of Colin Bond and Greg Carr in escorts <laughs> kicking through it and probably going straight on. The time that I always did it. You know, the thing about the mine shaft, as the name suggests, it's like running down the mine shaft. It's so steep. It's the steepest bit of road I've ever sort of competed on. But it kicks left at the top slightly. And normally in rallying, even though you've got pace notes, you sort of might use tree lines as a slight guide. There's nothing. There's sky. It might be a Qantas jet if you're lucky. Um, once again, as I said earlier, I wasn't the bravest, fastest guy. So you needed an Evo or a Crocker or a uh, Possum to be the ones jumping it because that takes some serious commitment. I might have got a little bit light and run down the bottom. But then we, of course, you hit the dip. So you've one, you, you, as you're going down it, you can't see. You're always trying to look through your root vent. That's the angle you're on. So by the time you hit the bottom at speed, you've actually got to go 90 left around a tree, and that's probably second gear and stuff. So it's a daunting bit of road. And I think in the build-up to it, 
you sort of outside, not outside yourself, but I know there's going to be all these blue shirts and a couple of red ones in there that were free, and you want to try and put on half a show, so you're sort of fighting yourself about, I've got a whole rally to worry about here, or do I try and be a hero on one spot? And as the vision would show, if you type in Mineshaft or whatever else, there's been Kevin Shaw comes to mind where they've miscued it and jumped it. There's been Japanese drivers do it, but... Was it Paul I, Gover that missed, yeah. messed it up one time? Paul Gover yeah. had a guest drive there and he messed it up and put it into a tree on the mine shaft. I might be, oh, there you I go. Might be incorrect I'm, there. No, you, you, can you yeah. can you double check that? Because I'd like to use that against him at some point. If that's no, just, true. Ask him. just ask him. <laughs> no, ask no, him. I won't do that. Um, <laughs> I think the thing as well, when I first went to Canberra, I actually went, there was one opportunity where I got a chance to go when I was quite young in that left-hand drive for Hyundai. And we're doing this mine shaft stage and we know it's coming up, but I've never been to it before. And we went, it was getting later in the stage. There was only about a kilometre and a bit to go before the stage finished. And we go, maybe it was that back there. That's probably not a big deal. It's not until we got there, you always go, in recce, when you're just driving a road car, shit, do you want to get out and make sure there's a road on the other side here? Because I don't want to go down. So you knew, ultimately, when you're at the mine shaft. So. <laughs> they, were, they, were, um, they were very heady days, as you said, for the, the Subaru brand. Um. We've done the we've done the early career. We've done a little bit of the Subaru side of things. I'd like to touch on, I guess, which has been more recently in your life is the international career, particularly into China. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, driving for Subaru again, like back in the back in the mix with the factory again. Yeah, because I think as as I said, Subaru as a factory outfit had pulled out of the Australian Rally Championship at the end of 05. 06, 07, We did a bit of a tarmac stint in the twelve hours. Gaz, Gaz said. Um, and then there was an opportunity where the Chinese championship was coming on leaps and bounds and particularly Subaru as a brand were coming on quite strong and wanted to, I guess, leverage what Rally had done for markets like Australia and Japan. And at that time, each international or each team could have one international driver. So the likes of Martin Rowe, David Higgins, these guys were going to China and being part of the Chinese championship with Mitsubishi and their various teams. There was a couple of cigarette companies and stuff. So they had a couple of Japanese drivers have a crack at it and weren't quite getting the results they wanted. And one of my old STI managers at the time was in play, sort of semi-retired and being sort of given the task of showing the Chinese how to go rallying for Subaru and everything else. And at one point, I get a call up to say, hey, would you come and test one of these cars in China? And, of course, here we are, go across there. And, you know, I did three years there. Um, most of the time thinking, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> Um, probably got more stories from three years in China than having a decade to do an Australian Rally Championship. Well, that, but tell was, us about the SARS virus. Well, the thing was, <laughs> it's not a cool story anymore because now that we've gone through COVID, for a while there, I had a great story where I was quarantined for five days. Now, anyone in Melbourne throws eggs at me when I now say, oh, I went through it tough for five days in China being quarantined. But they, it was actually the uh, swine flu, would you believe? So I'd gone to, gone to Beijing for a rally. Myself and the, I had a media guy come across with us, Tolly Chalice here from Perth, who was going to just do almost a light documentary thing. So we flew out of Perth, engineer out of Brisbane, uh, or Melbourne, uh, sorry, New Zealand, and the co-driver out of um, out of Brisbane, all meet together, do a test, and we're on our off day in Beijing City doing some filming, and we get a phone call, and they and this is just by the rally starting with recce and stuff, and they said, oh, Dean, the health department's here at your hotel. And so we soon get ushered off to the team's hotel, which was not where we stayed. And they gave us, they planted one young guy in the team and said, this is your driver. These two weren't with you and you two are on your own. That was the brief I got given by <laughs> an interpreter. By the time we get to the hotel, from afar, they're yelling at us through their hands going, oh, just go up to your room. 
and they'll be up there shortly, and then all of a sudden, a guy in a full hazmat suit rocks up there, <laughs> trying to take swabs and stuff, and basically gives me my kit to go with. So luckily for us, I can get on the phone with the interpreter and say, "What? What are they expecting us to do here?" Oh, you have to go with them. What do you mean? In the ambulance that's down there, look out your window with the lights on. You both get dressed in your hazmat suit, take your suitcase with you, and hop in the back of the ambulance. It's like, well, for how long? We're not sure. We're working that out. So then we sculpt down there. It was like this walk of shame with everyone else, you know, people out there and walking from afar, there's barriers and bits and pieces. And Tolly and myself get loaded in the back of an ambulance with these guys wearing hazmat suits and now are getting chartered down the freeway to Beijing City. At one point, this sounds like a joke, we stopped at a, you know, looking out the window, we stopped at a toll booth. When we took off, the back door flung open. So we bang on it. We say then go, what's going on? They thought we'd jumped out. So they're doing a count. Anyway, when we got to Beijing City to the hotel, it's got armoured guards. It's all secured off. There's air coming in, no air going out. It's like a CSI movie in the base. Everyone's wearing masks and you got issued a room. And we were there for five days. You had to be quarantined. And apparently the story was you guys were in three rows of someone who's now been confirmed with swine flu on your flight from Perth to Hong Kong and you have to quarantine and we monitor you through that time. So I missed the rally. They would have worked pretty hard in China to get us out of there. They couldn't. And, of course, you needed a visa to travel. So to get a visa organised, they couldn't just pluck anybody out. So at one point, after 24 hours of trying, they said, who would be a good replacement for you? I'm like, Are you, what sort of question is that? Who is ever going to say who's going to be a good replacement for you? And would you believe your mate was over there skulking around for a ride with Mitsubishi or Hongi team or something. They <laughs> ended up giving a blue shirt to Simon Evans, who drove my car <laughs> in a tarmac Beijing rally with my co-driver. And luckily for me and probably shit for Simon, what was the fact that it would have been the worst event for us in our tyre car combination and he probably struggled his ass off, poor bastard. And uh, I missed the whole rally. And that was the one rally my mum went to with her partner Malcolm to fly in and look at me do a rally. And she gets to the airport, gets given a phone and says, by the way, your son's quarantined for five days. So <laughs> that was a cool story. And the photo of the guy in the hazmat suit used to make people gasp. But nowadays that doesn't mean anything. So yeah. the, good, the good thing about that, Dean, is that we've had, we've had Evo on and uh, he didn't mention it. So it must, it must have been a fairly ordinary it's, result. It wouldn't have been a career highlight. And I don't think I've actually got to speak to him about it, actually. But my mum would have been floating around with her Subaru flag, technically cheering for Simon Evans. So that didn't happen. Lucky she was a couple of postcodes away from home, eh? And she yeah, was on tour, stays on tour. So the, no. the, whole, the whole China thing, that's that's finished off now you're you know longer yeah and the thing was i probably did three years there and ultimately probably got bumped um the series went through some highs and lows i think covid's probably knocked on the head i haven't kept up with it fully the other thing for the brand from subaru's point of view is that i think they no longer bring the wrx into china as a mainland as a car on on sale so i think they try to rebrand with an xv and a few other things over there at the time so i've still got some odd touch points with some of the guys from there but i did you know three or four years as it turned out and um you know, by the time we'd ended there or, you know, in the midst of some of that being pretty good, there was about six really serious teams. And like I said, there was the likes of, you know, we had Juha Salo and uh, these guys come from Finland and all sorts of stuff. So, and when it came to the Chinese round of the Asia Pacific, we took on, you know, the Katsu Taguchis and the buddy Cody Crockers and whoever rocked up, Alistair McRae and the Proton. So we had a chance to to square off against those and the Cusco team who I drove for for a little piece as well in 08. So, um you know, at, at, at the end of the year, and that was a round that did suit us in regards to our tyre 
package it was normally raining there and quite twisty and sort of suited us and, and me so um you know we had a couple of you know great results there where we um you know took on asia pacific's best and ended up on podiums and winning stages and bits and pieces of which you know when you're running a chinese local team they they absolutely love doing that the interesting thing about uh, for us at basically living in a circuit racing environment is that you don't have anyone you dislike because you're all you're not you're not competing well technically but you're not competing head to head with a guy on a racetrack you you're again you're racing time effectively yeah and it's like we say it's like going and playing golf you 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 technically rock up at the 19th hole and you're all mates even though your mate yeah. might have kicked it along a little bit to you know get a few scores the guy who beat you on the day played better ultimately and that's what I grew up around with rallying and I didn't know any different was only when I started to get touch points of circuit racing or supercars when you'd sort of even ask them the question like, hey, what are you uh, what are you up to on tonight, Sunday night? And they go, I'm going back home. Oh, you don't? We did. You talk about that golden era, one of the great things of it and one of the cool memories, and we don't do it much anymore because we're all too busy, is that each team, and well, there was a presentation for each rally on a Sunday night at the hotel, and we're talking like 200 people. Toyota would take the whole team. They'd have 30. Subaru would have 30. Mitsubishi have 20. The local privateer guys have 10. And so there's 200 people having a fantastic night. And some of the after parties were legendary. You know, there's some stories that probably should never ever be told and won't be told where, but everybody got on really well. I mean, like you Mm. allude to there, Gaz, that, you know, if you've got a family of 30, you're not going to get on with all of them, but um, just in regards to personalities. But as a general rule of thumb, the rallying fraternity is unbelievable from that point of view. And we, you get on well and you have, you know, you go and do the presentation then you go to the local bar down there. And that's why I think we all became binge drinkers because I've <laughs> talked about that one month. We wouldn't drink for one month. Then we'd be a two pot screamer on a Sunday night at the presentation. <laughs> We're back to being off, off it for another month till the next rally. So we, we never were. The other tip I'll give you about rally drivers. And I think maybe you guys correct me from a circuit racing point of view for all the talent we supposedly have and, you know, dancing behind the wheel and the wheel work and the feet work and the whatever work, none of us can dance. I don't know any <laughs> rally driver who can dance. None of us. We think with a bit of liquid courage in us we can, but that just ends terribly if anyone's bothered to take a photo. Uh, Daz has a very uh, poignant uh, phrase that he uses when he commentates, dancing on the pedals. Yeah. So you think, so, right? So, Daz, you're no. wrong. I, I, I do. My talent does transpire onto the dance floor, though, Dean. So, um, you know, like that might mean that you're a shit uh, race driver then. Yeah, you possibly, <laughs> possibly, I'm, I'm doing podcast, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> talking about it. I've talked about it for ten years more than I ever did it. So that's. No, uh, no, I don't. I do that now, mate. Thing. That's okay. <laughs> that, that's, yeah. You're always um, better now than what you used to be. That oh, is yeah, true. Much that easier. is true. Um, seriously, now, um, I and you can wave this one through if you want to um professional rally driver for team subaru with cody and uh the legendary possum born what um what was that like working with you know a guy actually your dad raced against him for a start but what was it like working with racing against and then ultimately saying goodbye to yeah like you said i think it was slightly different for me because I knew him a bit when dad raced. And of course I was late, you know, teenager then. And when I joined the team, Cove was well entrenched in there. And so I had technically only 02 and half of 03. So even though we had some touch points there in the, in the middle, 
I had only probably a season and a half with him as opposed to like Code's four years or so. So I think Code had a probably stronger uh, link to the team and Possum at that point. Um, the, the biggest thing that stands out for me from the bloke, we know his accomplishments, a seven-time champion. The year that we adjusted from him winning and being in a you know world rally car, and it was only two, it was a two-horse race, him on your bikes are going to win. And we went to Group N. So he'd won six titles that time. I think most people probably went, here we go. We're talking Ed Odinsky's going to cream him. We've got Code who's won Group N titles, et cetera. That year in 03, and I'm in the team, and I'm number three, so you don't get all necessarily the good stuff. That's no problem. He got off to the start with no points. Broke, I think, drive shafts from memory or something like that. The first round had no points. He is a racer more than a business guy. He just did what was required, advanced up the list. We needed dog boxes. He made dog boxes or, you know, got dog boxes sorted within four months. Oh, sorry, four weeks. No one else could do that because you'd have to get a budget or do we have the budget? God knows how that company ran because he was just a racer. And the impressive part for me was how he went from being all these things going on, team and the environment and running for New Zealand and all the things that it takes to run a professional team anyway, and then hop in the car and drive the way he did and come from zero points to win that championship to become his seventh in Group N is the bit that I went, wow, this guy's special. Up to that point, you could, you weren't, you know, you could probably argue, well, he's got the best car and he's, you know, come from this and that. And we knew he was a great driver. But for me, that cemented that, man, this guy is special. Probably an average businessman, but an awesome driver and competitor and just did what it took. I remember actually having a chat to Code at one point when, because in 0, so he'd won that championship in 0, 0, um, 02. So we're talking 03 and we've still got three cars running. Possum has joined as well. We're all pretty much told this might be the last year that we'd run three cars. So, Dean, you got to step up and probably get podiums. Code, you got to start winning and possible. you got to keep doing what you're doing. And I remember speaking to Code and going, mate, if we end up with this being a two-car thing, how the hell are we going to get some of the stuff that Possum gets across the line or across the line? Because, you know, we're just drivers. We don't run the team or have the impact. And I think Possum made some decisions that he just had to back himself in on. And he probably had the, the support or the know-how of Nick backing it up as well, Nick Senior, who was the boss, and they had an amazing relationship. But that's the bit that I now remember. You know, I've got dad stories and that stuff. And I, I like I said, I haven't been in a lot of cars with a lot of people. I talked about Ed Ordinsky before, and he's a legend of our sport and a Hall of Famer, as is Neil Bakes and stuff like that and a few others. I sat with Possum once on a test and doing the same road, and I... It had tram tracks in it, meaning that the, the, the grooves dug out, right? So you've either got to go around it with the four wheels in it and to sketch it out and have the left, you know, if you turn the left, you've got the left front in the left groove and the left rear is in the right groove. You're, of course, crossed up. So he's coming to this left hand. I've been running around like a train and he just tipped it in and this thing was fully, therefore, crossed up. And I'm going, holy shit, is that what he does through this corner? Like just full commitment, man, you could be on the power more. And then it ran up through and over this this sort of grid through a gate. That's a fast corner. In my notes, it'd be a five. It's probably only 20 degrees. And I'd been lifting and getting through the gate. And I remember grabbing the seat below my, in between my legs going, holy shit, I'm trying to beat this guy or compete with this guy through there. His commitment was unbelievable. And I mean, I guess I must have some of it, but as a passenger, I'm just sitting there going, man, give me the steering wheel any day of the week because this was crazy. And so there, there are a couple of touch points. And then, of course, 
the loss of him was massive because just the circumstance around it. I mean, I was advised, I was on, I don't go camping much, probably only twice in my life. And once was, you know, back then, no mobile phones or no reception, getting, you know, a, a call from the campground that my, someone's chasing us, you know, all the family, because Subaru were trying to get hold of me to make some decisions. This was happening to Possum, all cameras coming up, et cetera, and all these other backstories on that stuff. And, you know, obviously there for a while, we had our fingers crossed that he could fight through it and all that sort of stuff and didn't make it. And then, of course, there's the stories of us going to Canberra and the team committing and the emotion of, you know, Code winning that particular APRC round. We were on the podium in third, which was, you know, probably my first podium, actually. And I guess this new era of us stepping up and, you know, the, the theme that year was doing it for Possum. And that's when I talked before about, you know, someone like um, Jeff Bond from the AIS coming with us on board in the team and uniting us on, okay, let's maximise what this is. Because it was a huge loss. There were some people that just stepped up remarkably in that time from, you know, Kevin and Ali Sanderson who took the team on, you know, took the business over, which, like I said, you Possum was probably not the world's best businessman because they were handshake deals and he's a racer's racer, not a business guy. Uh, Phil Rogers, who really, you know, steered that whole ship tremendously well as a team manager and stuff, and everybody else in between, and Ferrelli and Simon Poole, who supported it. And, you know, lucky for Code and I, we could run with the baton that he gave us. And, you know, Code went on to win three championships, and we continued to win the Manufacturers' Championship. And that final year, uh, in 05, Code won the championship. I was second in the championship. We won the Manufacturers. We went on to go very close to winning rounds of the World Championship and stuff. And in some ways, I feel like it was sort of that Seinfeld moment that Subaru chose to go out on top. Um, you know, uh, you know, we've got 10 years of success. What does a, uh, an 11th year mean and what happens with that? You know, the plateau of sports marketing and all that sort of stuff. So uh, that's probably part of that amazing story that we could run with that. And we, we lent on and everyone dug deep to keep that going. So that 10 consecutive championships is you know, is was possum built it and then he wasn't there and everyone else had to step up to do that. And that's probably the amazing part of that story as well. And the full commitment from the brand, you know, some of the key management and exec teams at the time we're talking, you know, so Nick Senior was the brainchild and the boss at the time. And then, you know, people that we're still friends with today from Toby O'Bree, you know, uh, Derek Ashby and those sorts of people who were a part of that exec team who went on events and were a real, they believed in it as, as much as anything from a brand. And, and you know, that stuff you'll never forget. Along with yourself believing in the brand as well, like 17, 18 years or something employed essentially as a yeah. as a guy to be on call for the brand when when required, when needed, et cetera, to the point now where both you and your dad are back working for the brand and doing safaris in in uh, in modern Subarus. Yeah, which is another cool thing. I think, you know, dad at one point many years ago, probably 10 years ago, when I think I wouldn't mind doing safari, thinking, oh, shit, I didn't know you'd, you'd uh, retired from gravel rallying and tarmac rallying. And he said, oh, I, I haven't, but no one cares anyway. <laughs> but he hasn't ironically done anything since then. And he, he liked the challenge on thought maybe his skill sets would work towards that. And um, I think it was actually eyeballing a Pajero at the time. And I said, well, hey, we're going to, we're so bro, if you're going to have a crack at this stuff, we're going to invest some money. You better pick a, a, you know, a badge with some stars on it. So he got an XT, you know, turbocharged Forester, and then, learned the craft of safari and, you know, miscued on the first year, but finished and learned a heap. And then ended up, I think, you know, got second, was was leading at certain points in the Australasian safari. And now, of course, it comes back as Sunraiser over in Wentworth with Troy Bennett's team. And dad loved it to the point that I think he always wanted me to go along or be a part of it. And it just clashed so many times with our business and bits and pieces that the very first time I went on safari is when I did it last year for the first time. And, you know, effectively, I guess, because uh, my relationship with the brand and bits and pieces 
uh, I probably got the better car because dad at that point's gone, well, I built this Forester and then, you know what? I can build the Evo version, as I use the inverted quotes, um, and got an XV at the time and then converted it with STI running gear and stuff. And that's where dad's quite engineering. You know, I'm not an engineer. Anything I said, I wasn't a mechanic at the top of the show. He's just clever at that stuff. And because we know the brand so well, this isn't the rough, tough car. It doesn't necessarily, it's not jacked up, but it's smart. It's efficient. It doesn't lend itself to all of that. But Jesus, we fight the fight. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd love it when someone like Tony Quinn with his, you know, Dakar style truck comes up to us and I can't do a Scottish accent to say, but basically along the lines of how the hell do you drive that bloody little Subaru so bloody fast through here <laughs> when we know what we're going through? So, you know, when we do states and our companies won state championships and ARC rounds and bits and pieces, when we do this, we are, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the babies of it. You know, it's the David versus Goliath and we're the, we're the David. And I sort of quite like the fact that everything on these cars is still production-based. It holds true to the roots of the brand and our engineering that's so good. And I, I do, I say we because I feel like, you know, I'm part of, uh, of Subaru and still do a lot with them. So I think that's why this year they've continued to sort of back it. It was, you know, Blair Reed's now on board at, at the helm of Subaru. He, he likes the style of that event. He thinks it's the toughest event in the country you could try and do finishing it's an accomplishment and then the fact we could win a stage or even maybe if everything right win a rally would be unbelievable because you know jeff ollams and his dakar buggy and i just mentioned tony quinn and his four-wheel drive and you've got the you know the travises in their cars these names and people that have done this style of events for a long time and i'm only done two rallies and of course to do it with the the blue and gold is pretty cool well what's your uh, opinion on um the crossover that's becoming more prevalent these days we've got rally guys doing circuit racing uh there's even a couple of guys like simon for instance is doing off-road racing uh glenn brinkman from queensland he's won state championship up there he's doing off-road now as well is is that good for their resume or is it the experience of doing something different i think it's both i think look back rallying is probably one of the few sports where you can adapt it's it's obviously difficult for a tarmac guy to jump on gravel for instance it's not as hard to transition the other way if you've got some car skills. Like when I went and did Targa, I'm not frightened by the car sliding around. It's still my Subaru. I know the Subaru very well. We go to track days. We do drive on tarmac. We do skid pan. It's hard to get your head around gravel and how much braking you do or don't have with a gravel tyre on. Let's look back at Colin Bond and George Fury and those guys who went on that successful, you know, into the reverse. No one's really been able to do it the other way around. You know, there's been... Oh, uh, Brocky. Brocky did all right. No, and I'm told Brocky was one of the few who could adapt the other way around. And well, then he, got, he had a good support crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah as well. <laughs> but, you know, he did rally cross and other things like that. And I think, you know, even Craig Lowndes touch point and did the Australasian Safari in Key Wheels car and, you know, did obviously won the rally, won the event in a very good car. So I think it's that fact that you can go where you would like to go based on, uh, you know, rallying because you look at the world championship people are fascinated by their gravel they're doing tarmac rallies they're doing snow rallies all this sort of stuff so you do have to have the skill set to be able to deal with that and it doesn't mean everyone's going to be able to go and be a him, but i think you can adapt yourself and, and probably do okay Dean, another part of your motorsport journey is your let's call it your media career your meteoric rise to uh the top of the motorsport uh presenting side of things, uh, presenting grassroots circuit racing in 2023, but particularly with Ross Dunkerton and now with um, with Jess Dane, you're the one that's been charged with telling the story to us about the Australian Rally Championship. 
how did that come about and 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 how much are you enjoying it uh it's probably because it's becoming harder to drive and easier to drive a microphone and have an opinion probably <laughs> but in all seriousness i as a kid growing up and i talked about wanting to be a trinket the other thing that i actually wanted to do and thought would be a proper job would be a tv cameraman would you believe so I actually work experience at Channel 7 and Channel 9 and those sorts of places. I wanted to be a cameraman back in the day. Uh, one bit of great to advice. To cover was, cricket, of course, just set and forget the camera. Yeah, point yeah. Or maybe I can be a cricket cameraman. Yeah, there with, you go. With Richie Benno and those sorts of guys. But anyway, I look, it just it just happened to be that I guess through that I had an interest in media. You know, clearly we can talk. Dad can talk probably. Not everyone wants to listen to what we've got to say, but we're happy to have a chat. And it came up through Paul Mullen, who was running the ARC, I'd done a little bit of stuff here with Tolly Chalice, who has a media site outlet, and we did some state stuff. And then one day there'll be some fairly average stuff of myself and Bill Hayes trying to, you know, host some local grassroots type motorsport here in Perth. And I guess you just took an opportunity and ran with it. You took an opportunity and ran with it, and then all of a sudden you're hosting, and then you know the rights change, and then you're with someone else, and the opportunity came again. And before you know it, ten years have gone by, and you, like you say, you're almost go. Oh, she was in that time of touch pointed and worked with Ross Duncan and then now you know you, you did a little bit on your own on socials because as the sport was building they brought Jess Dane along because I couldn't do a round she's she was loves the sport she's really you know uh, passionate about it we became sort of hosts together and yeah here we are still doing the coverage and then as you alluded to I was fairly nervous I was going to say when they said look have a crack at doing the trophies you know the Shannon's trophy series of the likes of you two guys and um, I went, bugger it, let's give it a crack. You know, and I lean on you guys a heap because it's not my area of expertise, but to top and tail and be involved in a different side of it, I love motorsport. And I guess for me, you know, the, the circuit racing is something I've just touched, pointed into, and I, you know, I'm not an expert at it by any stretch, but I love to be involved and I like trying to tell the stories, I guess, a little bit. And I guess I have the driver point of view. And I don't go in knowing what questions I'm going to ask. I genuinely don't. I thought you would not. You know, when I first started, I thought I had some stuff listed down. It's just literally trying to use the moment and your knowledge and what you know to ask, hopefully, a, a useful question. And particularly around rallying, that tends to work. And with some shows, you could ask 20 questions and only 10 get on the, on air, et cetera, and sometimes you don't even hear the question. But I guess on the live coverage stuff, that sort of seems to work and we can, you know, try and hold the conversation and do stuff. But it's my sport. I speak the language Throw me at the soccer field. I wouldn't use the right language. Is it a pitch? Is it soccer? Is it football? Blah, blah, blah. So you can see through that. It's like when a sports presenter is trying to present your sport and they, you know, pronounce the name wrong of the bloody legendary guy in your sport. And you're thinking, oh, God, yeah, I've heard it before on Channel 9. You've had Cancun and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> so I learned early, but, you know, I know it's a service park and I know their stages. They're not, it's not a rally race. It's not all that stuff that annoys you when you're in the sport that football players and stuff would do. This is my sport. If I'm going to cover and be involved in the media, this is I can't go and do anything else necessarily. Uh, don't, don't you hate it when they try and cross promote cricket at motorsport or something like that? It's like, yeah. nah, so from that point of view, that's where it's landed. And guess what? Um, would I just go to spectate? Probably not. Um, yes, our company's involved still in in this sort of stuff, um, but I, you know, I'm not. I, I'm, it's there. I'm not going to give up the opportunity to. It allows me to be in and talking to the guys. And I love it when it's at the coalface. Actually, my favourite ones are at the end of stages because I know what that's like. And someone throws a microphone in, that's the rawest comment you're going to get. And I guess that's the bit that I love of it, that it allows me to be at the top end of, of our sport at Australian level and be in and around it doing something, not just spectating or kicking the rocks at the service park or on the Sunday night trying to have a chat to somebody and you know tell them how good I think I used to be or whatever else. So it's a different thing. 
the team that's involved in it, as you guys would know, they work bloody hard at it as well. They are a rally team for us with cameras, not even you guys at the circuit. And a lot of the time, they're the bloody first people in and the last people out. These guys work uber hard at it, and particularly for rally to get anything out, whether it be social nowadays, which is, you know, it needs to be instant or live or whatever else is hard bloody work. And these guys work really hard at it. And I'm just a very small cog in a big wheel, which is cool. Just on that, um, Gaz and I would like to know, um, MA, they've uh, contacted you and renewed you for next year. Uh, we're, we're waiting for the call. Uh, I, I have no idea what's going on to be honest maybe my last round in camera in a couple of weeks time i'll have that chat i'll just uh i'll start saying, well, you, are you guys locked in if you guys are in i'm in we'll send each we'll other a thumbs up or, or, or we'll send each other a thumbs up or an eggplant or something on a text that we've got the job <laughs> and, and a lot of them at ma listen so we're, we're ready we're, we're ready, for ready to go. seriously hard contract negotiations coming <laughs> Yeah, what they called us? Yeah, we'll do it. Let's yeah, go. yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Dean, we're rapidly running out of time. We're tying up. Uh, we, you'll probably miss peak hour if there is one in Perth uh, leaving. Leaving. Well, work. I'm, I'm oh. going to be in trouble picking one of my daughters up from cricket training. See, there is cricket. <laughs> one of my youngest daughters, she's in it. Although with a fractured finger at the moment caused by me, so that didn't go down. <laughs> Was that bowling a fast one, was it? No, we, yeah, trying to get used to the hard ball. She's only about 11. And... Uh, <laughs> I told her hard enough for a couple of days until mum took her to the doctor. She's got a fractured finger, you idiot. So, uh, yeah, she's learning the hard way of us uh, heritages. What's the the kennel like living in? Yeah, correct. I I always like to ask near the end of of these um, Race Fuels Grassroots Racing podcast, Dean, um, two things. Your single most favourite moment in motorsport, most memorable when you're 85 years of age and sitting back having a port at the end of the day and watching someone present rally in a really bad way, not because you're not there, but yeah. the single moment in your, your motorsport career where you just sit back and go, yep, that was cool. Enjoyed that. And the other part to that question is your main, the biggest nemesis when you rolled into the service park and you went, Oh no, so-and-so is here and I'm going to have to beat them, which is easy because I'm doing heritage, but I that person is my nemesis. Uh, first one, the easy one, well, not easy one, but from a results point of view, which of course, you know, it's motorsport. It's done, you, you you judge yourself by results. 04 was my best season. We won Cambridge, you said, and the win around of the WRC uh, was pretty cool. Uh, that's and probably my favourite car, you know, in that era. That's the golden era. There's pockets of others. Unfortunately, I can't just turn around and go, oh, I won my championship because I didn't win enough championships in anything in particular. <laughs> so maybe that not, year... Not like probably, your fellow Western Australian, Tony Riccadello, who's just racked up. Yeah, I know. He's won 12 now, the bugger. So, um, yeah, that's easier. It's much easier to say you win stuff rather than come up with all the excuses. So, you know, that New Zealand one was pretty special. There's a story behind it. We'll bore you with another day. It's probably just the quick answer. Um the other one was probably only reminded of today. I didn't see him as a nemesis necessarily. And we, we talk many legends that I got to compete against. And I, and I don't use that word, um, you know, this flippantly because some of them are. They're, they're on the Hall of Fame. It's pretty cool for our rally. I'm not on the Hall of Fame, but these guys are. You know, Neil Bates and Boston Bourne and, you know, Cody Crocker and stuff. So I was Scotty Pettit. Scotty Pettit was on the phone to me today. So him and I are good mates. And he said to me today, I've never heard this before, he said, you wouldn't have been as good without Crocker as your teammate, which I'm – was taken back at and stuff. We go, you seriously talking about? And he's probably right. You you get talked about all the time. The the direct person, talk Formula One, talk V8 supercars or whatever you want to do, 
your teammates, the guy that you judged against. And I sort of said before, I probably didn't race enough against Possum and he was in different cars. And Code won three bloody championships in a row in the Australian series. He won four Asia Pacifics in a row. Then he went and, you know, won bloody side-by-side side and everything else. And he's probably underrated for whatever reason, despite 10 championships in a row. And he was my teammate. And like I said, I finished second to him one year, which is pretty cool and whatever else. But I didn't, you know, I could beat him on the odd stage and we had very different styles. But it's probably the bastard Cody Crock. And I say that because he's still a good mate of mine and we still do drive days and we ring each other and hassle each other on it. So it's hard to have a nemesis when you call him your mate and you have, you'd have a drink with him and go out to dinner with him and stuff. But, um, you know, that time he was the guy to beat. You know, and I'm not talking now possum in that stuff and when he was in group N and Ed. So you had... In that 04, 05 type time when Possum's gone, you got Ed and you got Scotty Petter and you had Atco rock up and you had Simon Evans and Neil Bates in Toyotas and he beat them all. Or we beat them all. You know, I might have been second or third or whatever else. But, you know, uh, that's he he beat them time and time again. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, Simon would say he was a tough competitor and Scott would say he was a tough competitor. He was a bloody good driver. And that that little pocket there over that couple of years, um, yeah, maybe because he was my teammate, I didn't think much about it at the time, but he was the guy to beat. Uh, let me just add two more questions to that. The one that got away and perhaps the worst one that you ever had event. Uh, the one that got away, uh, they're probably just trying to think of the, I've quoted a lot of stuff, which I thought I did a pretty good job on. The ones that got away, isn't it funny how they slip from your mind, those ones. Um <laughs> Asia Probably Pacific. the one in Beijing wherever. Yeah, yeah, sleep. well, <laughs> close because I'm about to go long you Asia Pacific, my last time in what we call the GD07 Subaru. And we had code there and all those guys, and we were leading the outright Asia Pacific side of the rally, uh, which was pretty cool. And we broke a gearbox on the first day. And I reckon I could have won that event. And, you know, and, and to beat, you know, we weren't doing the Asia Pacific at the time, but they'd all rocked up. It was our round. We we're winning China, et cetera. That one probably one that got away, which was sort of up there a little bit. Um, your other question, sorry, was the worst event you've been involved in. You know, the trickiest one when I was really young, I talked about running with Kia and I went to Indonesia. We had actually a regional rally there, but Jesus, that was an eye opener. When it rained there on the plantations and stuff, I I just look back now and go, man, I was like, I don't know, what, what, what would be an explanation of someone who's just slipping on the bloody, you know, just a duck out of water in a lot of ways in regards to just feeling like you have no skill at all. You know what I mean? Dog, dog on lino running. Yeah, we'll use the Dick Johnson, yeah, Dick Johnson <laughs> phrase. That's what it was like. I mean, I was understeering off and terrible. You know, we ended up finishing and stuff and doing a very good job as it turned out. But, man, that was just a baptism of fire. I think we got rocks thrown at us by the locals at one point. And at 19, <laughs> I hadn't travelled overseas much. And it was just uh, your brain's full. You know, I just mentioned before, Dad had mentioned this is a – you know, a mental sport, mate. My brain was at max capacity at that point, thinking, what the hell is this stuff all about? And I've got this front wheel drive, grouping Kia, sliding around like a dog on lino, smacking in the bloody, you know, rubber trees and all sorts of stuff. Not rubber in the sense they bounce back, but that's what they make them <laughs> they still do damage. And circuit circuit racer would say rubber tree. Oh, you went off the track and into the wall. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's probably the one that I but it toughens you up to become better. You know, you learn by your mistakes well, by the experiences and then you know, that's what happens. You go and do these tough events and you fight through them. When you come then back and do what's a more familiar rally, you are much better and match fit for it. So, um, yeah, they were harder to answer than I thought, Gaz, because we 
race drivers or rally drivers just dismiss those out of your mind. Don't, don't, they don't exist. That's why we had to remind people you never that. ask that stuff. Well, we have to go really dig deep and make something up. So, <laughs> Dean Herridge, um, you got to go and pick up an eleven-year-old with a very sore finger that just happened. Well, to I'm, I'm right in now. trouble because of the fractured finger. I'm now in trouble because she's probably stuck on the street somewhere. I'm be, <laughs> you, you two. For why I have a missing daughter and she'll be on a milk cart. <laughs> there you go. Next time you're on a road trip with the girls, put the podcast on and make them sit through an hour and a half of that. There you go. Is that punishment or a reward? The reward. Yeah. Good girls. <laughs> Good girls. <laughs> well, at least uh, they know I'm busy doing something. I just didn't forget about them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dean, thank you so much for your time. It's been terrific and can't wait to get mm -hmm. you back to a circuit race and uh, host and hold the whole show together for us. Yeah. Mate, I look forward to it. Hopefully, I do a better job. But no, great, great chatting to you guys. It's been fun. Saturday night at the pub again. <laughs> All, yeah. Right. All right, yeah, done. There we go. <laughs> and we'll I'll bring... tell you all these little stories. <laughs> we'll bring the yeah, we'll bring the recorder and just hide it under the seat and get the real story. <laughs> done, Thanks very much, Dean. Thanks, guys. Tell you what, Gaz, we're going to have to deal uh, more on the guys that come from the uh, from the gravel, aren't we? They love a chat. Simon Evans and Dean Herridge have just absolutely entertained us from uh, from the get go, and and like what we did with Simon, it was like we have to wrap it up now, Dean. Even though his daughter's somewhere at a, a cricket ground in Perth waiting to get picked up. Yeah, in most definitely so. Um, we should branch out and do a little bit of off road stuff and. Maybe get a hill climb guest on, but maybe uh, get Dean Amos on shortly. He's just won his first Australian hill climb championship at Ringwood Park on the weekend. He won it ahead of Dean Ty and Greg Ackland. And uh, he's been close before. He finished second in 2019, got beaten in the final runoff by 0.02 of a second by Malcolm Osler, and then finished third at the 2022 championships at Mount Cotton. Uh, had some had a spin. It was a shortened event because of heavy rain. Had a spin in the first heat and then or the first run off and then uh, had gearbox selection issues after that. So good to see him win that. A little bit further north where I was on the Gold Coast, we had uh, the final round of the Precision National Sports Sedan Series and the newly named Tire Power V8 Super Ute Series. Both went down to the wire because uh, Tony Riccadello was looking sweet uh, going into the first race, was uh, prominently placed and only had to get reasonable points. Uh, unfortunately, he had the car go under seven cylinders. So he finished 15th, I think, in that first race. Uh, Cameron McLeod won all three races in that brand-new Mark SSGT car in its debut, ran faultlessly and fast. Jordan Crusoe ran second, so he was a mathematical chance to <clears throat> maybe uh, sneak the title away for a second time, go back to back. But the uh, car had a coil wire come off in the second heat, second round, uh, second race, and therefore was a DNF. And in the third race, Tony <laughs> had a very uncharacteristic little touch with the tyre wall and the rear chicane. Um, <clears throat> when he was having a crack at trying to beat uh, Cameron McLeod. So, yeah, number 12 went to the Western Australian. What an effort they put in, Des, coming all the way over from Western Australia each time. It, it's a big, big task to don't when you don't have a local round. Everything's on the East Coast and it's a long way to come. And that, that car 
while it's been around for a long time and it's uh, won 12 championships in his hand, plus one with Brian Smith preceding that, um, it's a little bit like a First Fleet axe. It's There's nothing it old on it anymore. It is. <laughs> and, the and eldest they... thing on it is a set of tyres of use in a first race. Yeah, the, the, and look, the... <laughs> It, they just dig deeper and deeper and deeper, and um, you you sort of cast your eye around the the sports sedan paddock, and you look at some of the, the the great folk that are involved there, and particularly John Gourlay, and you look at John and you go, they they did an engine, now what was it a couple of weeks before Sydney Bathurst, Park, yeah. yeah, and then they've yeah. done Bathurst, and they're on a on a reserve engine, and John's had to get that thing going. I mean, he's the owner of the Audi, and Jordan does drive it for him as Jack Perkins and Darren Hossack did previously, but uh, that there's some people with some serious commitment to making sure Tony doesn't win races, isn't there? Yeah, and um, the core could have been a result because the Gold Coast circuit's so bumpy, maybe something they didn't quite allow for on the Audi. But um, you got to feel sorry too for Ash Jarvis. Who... Oh, I was just about to say that, Ash <laughs> Jarvis. Like, he's, he has driven one of the most intelligent, championships you would ever see like that's a that's a real brain matter what they've done and unfortunately it sort of unraveled a little bit on the weekend didn't it well it it wasn't their fault either you know that um they were still in line to run second even though they got turned around in the second race and uh, unfortunately the car just shut down on the way to the start line in the third race mm. still finished mm. third in the championship behind uh caruso but uh, yeah it could have been second I guess the other sad thing for mine is that um, Stephen Tomasi didn't get up there with the Calibra. I think the Calibra would have been a pretty difficult car to beat on the Gold Coast. They would have had that uh, humming. Well, a lot of it is if you're in front, um, yeah. you've got primary position, it's hard to get past. should also mention that Aaron Borg picked up back-to-back uh, -back titles in the Super Utes and that went right down to the wire because he and Adam Marjorie were really fighting for it in the last race. Ryle Harris was in it. Uh, after he won the first race, he was a mathematical chance of taking it out and then got taken out of the second race uh, in a free vehicle accident on the back straight, which um, he was quite upset about and did lay blame. But anyway, we won't go down that path any further. And in the last race, Marjoram was actually in front of Borg. Uh, they were line astern. They were equal on points at that stage. With the win, would have gone to Borg because he had more victories through the season. But then Adam uh, Aaron did pass Adam, and uh, Craig Woods got got ahead of Adam as well. So it resolved that any question about who was going to win the series. The series has certainly come out of the doldrums, even the wilderness this season, hasn't it? And and started to, I guess, give a bit of recognition to some hard work and some big money that people have spent to get it back to the to the, I guess, the heady days of the the old V8 brutes. Yeah, well, it's getting a little bit like that too. They're um, they're, they're not uh, mucking around when they're out there and there is a bit of push and shove. And we, we've seen that in the first race with uh, Marjorie and Ryle Harris going side by side down in the turn one and never wanting to give an inch. But, you know, all fairs and in motor racing and uh, Ryle was up for three wins uh, plus a DNF, which meant he actually finished... Uh, second or third for the round, which is a bit of a shame. We deserve more than that. And that was in a lease vehicle too. He was running a Hilux at the beginning of the year and then uh, leased the Chris Formosa Ford Ranger, turned it into a winner. Uh, and then, of course, the Porsche Painted Dixon Carrera Cup was there as well. Yeah, and Bailey Hall was the winner there. He'd just come back from the States where he'd race at Coda. 
Um, it didn't, uh, I think he had a couple of top 10 results there. So uh, for McElroy Racing, came back here and actually they, they got a 1-2 in the end because um, Jackson Walls was finished second and uh, took the lead in the championship with a round to go at the Adelaide 500. So good weekend on the Goldie Gaz, back uh, back home now and uh, back to reality after a few uh, weeks up in the clouds at uh, Mount Panorama and the Gold Coast. Uh, yeah, well, it wasn't real warm on the Gold Coast, I must say. It wasn't Gold Coast-type weather. It was more like what you have down in Melbourne. Oh, yeah, um, the, glit- the glitz of the glamour, the un- unmatched at Calder, I could say. <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, Sydney Motorsport Park had the final round of the New South Wales Motor Race Championships. One of the categories that uh, was resolved was the New South Wales State RX-8 Cup Series, which went to Jack Panacea over uh, Tom Shaw and Jack uh, Luke Weber. Sorry, yeah, Jack, Jack uh, Panacea, a Victorian. Yeah, one he raced, he, he raced a, against his dad. Yeah, and uh, actually, that was also a round of the National RX-8 Cup Series, which has a round to go. Um and Justin Barnes leads that. He, he finished third for the weekend. Uh, Panaccio was second, and Weber actually won the round. So that was that. New South Wales Production Touring had their final round of the year. Simon Hodges won the feature, which is a one-hour enduro from our good mate Chris Lillis in the debut of the uh, Class A2 Chev Camaro, which proved to be pretty quick. Matt Holt was fin- finished third. The championship, which is based on class class results, went to Andrew McMaster in a BMW 125i over Dan Tierney in the Toyota 86. Sean Cade, who was the reigning champion, finished third in the VW Golf GTI. Radicals were out uh, for the, well, Radicals were the winners at the last round of the uh, industry clothing New South Wales Super Sports Championship. Mark Rome won the first race. Justin Tagani won the second. Jonathan Canavan won the third. So overall, Tagani won the title from Canavan. Sergio Perez was in third spot. Neural in SR8s. Sports sedans. Well, that was already resolved. Brad Shields had already won the title, and he was up on the Goldie along with many of the other front runners from the New South Wales Championship. So. Uh, ben Mannix in a Shepard BMW had the win there over Tim Leafhead in the Mark Focus. Barry Kelleher in his TA2 Mustang was third. Darren Williams in the Saab was, uh, sorry, in the Sabre was able to score the New South Wales Formula V Championship despite a DNF in the first race and 10 for the round. Byron Wiseman won the round and finished second in the championship and also won Division Two. And Steve Butcher won the 1,200cc for I've forgotten how many times, but it's more than a dozen. <laughs> he, <laughs> as one of his uh, rivals always used to say, he goes there trophy hunting because he can win it. Anyway, good luck to him. He keeps coming back and he keeps winning out. Uh, final round of the uh, HQ Holden Championship was run. Chris Mole took the race. He had two wins. Jared Harbour beat him by 0.003 seconds in the final to win his first race and uh, Mole has actually won back-to-back championships. Formula Fords uh, were running. Uh, no details on who won the championship because there wasn't really enough cars running, but Eddie Beswick came up. Uh, he normally runs in the National Series. He won all three races there. And in 
the super carts, uh, Dylan Stevens won through the races in his 250cc cart and Adam Stewart in the 125 won the other. So that was about it. So they're finished for the year now. And uh, much the same as what happened to Victoria with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the one thing about all the three events we're talking about last weekend was that Race Fuels uh, supplied the fuel at all of the sites. Big shout out to our main sponsor. They're doing a, a ripping job, uh, not only of sponsoring us, but you think of the logistics oh. of supplying <laughs> uh, racing fuels and all the different varieties that people need. To I ride bet you're sort of looking forward to the Christmas break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the the man himself was at Calder. He was the single uh, man there. He was working very hard, and it was in a bit of a makeshift uh, compound because fuel compound rules have changed over the last 20 years or so since we last raced at uh, at Calder in, in any sort of earnest fashion. But uh, certainly Race Fuel's big presence across all three of those sites on the weekend. Yes, Calder Park. Um, thank goodness it's back. Um, it's back. Uh, it's like buying a genuine HQ. You know, you can imagine how a genuine unfettled HQ is. It's, you know, you're going to have to adjust the dwell and fiddle around with the Stromberg and probably put some uh, light globes in it and things like that. But um, so good to have. Up. Well, look, we, we've learned something in New South Wales over the last few years. The state can't exist on just one permanent racetrack. We in victoria right now are blessed with four we you know the the sand down thing just becomes more and more inevitable as it happens and um you know rowan Harmon is working very very hard he's on the ground there you know he told us briefly about it when he was on the uh, grassroots racing podcast but uh yeah they're working hard and they're doing it well within their means it's the it's the if you build it they will come type of process um they're saying that any any money that's made through events there will be plowed straight back into the the circuit um overwhelmingly the comment out of the drivers was the track has no grip and it's very bumpy um a lot of people Good, say that, that makes about, it a bit hard well a lot of them say that about Sandown too and you know what the corner doesn't change or the bump doesn't change for the guy behind you either so mm-hmm. there is that um, you know, you could you could sort of turn around and say, yeah, gee, needs a resurface. Yeah, most racetracks do a couple of years after they've had one. Um, but we'll race on it. Everyone had a great weekend. It was terrific weather. Uh, reminded me of Calder a long time ago. One minute it was really hot and windy. The next minute it was really cold and windy. So there's a couple of things that they, as well haven't changed about Calder. But um, there's something, Gaz, that we forget. Tracks like Malala and Calder induce great racing yeah you know they've got big stops big you know big commitment you've got to dive under brakes really to make a pass or power on past in the very very Mm. long straight at calder some great racing um we the the state championships tied up uh mark vadino won his first race in the 944s and um he actually won the round only just over Chris Lewis Williams who won the championship so the Baron of Benalla has he's now been uh uh, anointed by the, the I did series, say that yes yeah, the, the series commentator <laughs> Jack Atley who is a ripping inclusion into the commentary team loves his 944s is a, a, a racer of uh, of great note himself but uh, Jack's a sensational uh, commentator and personality and Cameron Bella who's been multiple champion as well so both Chris Lewis Williams and Cameron Bella now Gaz have got four championships each I've thrown the gauntlet down to them this time next year um, if one of them wins the championship, we'll have to get all five times Craig Baird down to present the trophy to them in the in the Porsche <laughs> brand. So uh, there could be another five times Porsche champion 
in Australia. Um, of note, Mark Torbett's um, finished uh, fifth, the president that works really, really hard on that category. Unfortunately, Adam Brewer, who to me is the, the man in waiting, I've been so impressed with the way he's gone about his racing and, and he's going to start winning races next year and uh, full encouragement to him. So we'll keep an eye out for for um, for him. Um, Formula V's, they have turned it on unbelievably and um, Lee Partridge in his Sabre 02 that he calls Sophie, the MPC auto speed entry there. He, is, uh, he took the weekend out um, over Reef McCarthy who took the championship there and Jason Kay on the weekend did a great job in his stinger. So a couple of Sabre 02s at the top of results there for Formula V and typical great Formula V racing. That wasn't a huge field. We, you know, it's over 16 cars there, but um, the racing never ceases to amaze in, in Formula V. Um, the round, MGN invited British sports cars. The round went to Trevor Lindsay, um, to Michael Traffin and Simon Elliott, but Simon Elliott uh, won a race. And uh, Phil Chester also won a race there. But Trevor Lindsay in his Triumph GT6 is just a magnificent racing car to look at and listen to and watch him race. He These guys, you know, all these cars are, are 60 to 30 to 60 years old in that bracket. And then some of the, the great looking uh, MGZRs that are in, the, in there as well. But uh, those MG, MGB GT V8s of uh, Phil Chester and the, and the RV8 of um, Simon Elliott, they sound almost somewhere between an S5000 and an F5000, that <laughs> that ground-thumping um, note that they have. And great mm. racing all year from the MG and Invited British Cars. They've had huge fields, a testament to the, the club behind them that keep that rocking on as well. Um, improved production, the championship went to Luke Gretsch Gumbo again in his HSV Senator. Uh, terrific season from him. He's had the thing airborne at Winton. Literally, it was they were registering it on the Benalla uh, Airport radar for a, for a bit there. There was a massive rebuild that he had to do to that car mid-season and um, really um, kind of gives me goosebumps about how he's done his championship. But a great result for the GC Electrical Services guy. The wind's on the wall. The, the round went to Ian McLennan. McLennan. He's essentially his teammate, great buddies. They do everything together. Robert Braun came back in the Braun Supertune BMW E30 and what a beautiful sounding race car that is. He got second for the round. And Matty Logan, who um, he's uh, doing a tremendous job at waving the flag there and the Mack Trucks Castrol entry. Sadly, Danny Timewell um, didn't play any further part after he didn't finish race one for the weekend. And that was his championship. It was so close between him and Luke. And again, I've got goosebumps just thinking about how his championship slipped away in the last event for the year. And um, the uh, the other category there for the weekend was the combination of the E30 racing and the Hyundai XLs. XLs very, very disappointing with only four entries there. So that's a shame. Um, there was a... Dwindling. Yeah, it was an enduro race up at Winton. Yeah, good idea. Went. Put a, put an endurance race on with a state round on just down the road. That's <laughs> great, great thinking. Motorsport shooting itself in the foot again. There were some um, good names in that as well. Ben there Gross was. was up there. Chris Piffer raced. There yep. was quite a few. Uh, yep. Um, Jesse Bryan won the round, which was uh, terrific for him because uh, Royce Lyon won the championship and um, he has been uncatchable all weekend. He finished in fifth place for the weekend. He appeared to have some issues with the car. 
But Jesse Bryan won the weekend and a couple of the races. Brian Burke second, Simon Schiff to Jeff Bowles. Uh, Goose Rogers threatened all weekend, was fast, sat in the front row of the grid, but uh, didn't result in a great weekend for the West Vic Earth Moving. And Gaz, that is it. Apart from the uh, presentation night for the state round and uh, like Dean said about rallying, Get it together, boys, and have a have a couple of frothies and relax and enjoy the <laughs> evening. Yeah, well, you're you're not emceeing that one, are you? Um, I haven't had the tap on the shoulder, but um, you might no, go gen- anyway. Generally, the the um, chairman of the board, who is uh, competitor Paul Zitty, he's a pretty good uh, he's a pretty good MC, and it, it allows me to sit uh, sit back and. Uh, as I said, enjoy some frothy have, have, and have a feed. Yeah, that's right. Or have a couple if someone doesn't eat their, their beef or chicken as it comes around the table. <laughs> hey, guys, that's, <laughs> episode, that's episode 37 before you start to unlo- un- unleash on me. You've still got some uh, racing to come in New South Wales. I've Park, got lots of uh, racing Sydney coming. Motorsport Park and then the International in the next two weekends. And Bathurst and then the weekend after that, Canberra, uh, the National Capital rallies on down yes. down there, and then of course off to Adelaide for the Velo Five Hundred. Uh, besides our grassroots racing podcasts, there are two other Speed Cafe podcasts worth listening to as well. Oh, so we, month... we we've got to repay folks for his little mention on ours, do we? Basically, yes. Oh, he's he's a, such a great uh, the news. No, I, I volunteered this. I did it. Okay. Yeah, every Monday at around five PM Australian Eastern Daylight time there is a speed cafe newscast hosted by folks which brings you all the latest news in our major categories like supercars and formula one then at about the same time on thursday the more in-depth speed cafe podcast will be available which features special guests that are on the cold face of motorsport the, the thing i like about folks one is you can actually hear the cigarette lighter as he as he lights one oh. up is it <laughs> <laughs> and in he goes legend uh, absolute legend and you're a guest on his show too aren't you Gaz? Um, no occasionally i might just talk about uh support categories uh that are coming up uh particularly uh uh with phalo 500 that's a big program down there it lots of categories the super utes are on but they're only as a uh, non-championship round we've got uh tcm uh, oh, you'll be able to do a live grassroots racing from 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 that event, then, won't you? You'll be able to cover off a, a whole uh, a whole a whole. Um, this one has time. I've got to do a lot of running around, and nothing's close to the media center. There, it's a hike. <laughs> Get out of the media center, then. Yeah, you do, but you've got to go a long way. It's like the Gold Coast. <laughs> Nothing's just sort of out the door and down the stairs. On that note, that is episode 37, Gaz. I, I still can't believe we got there, but we're there. Um, thank you, Gaz, for, uh, for for joining us tonight. Didn't look like you were going to, but you've managed to uh, get yourself to the microphone, and it's been a great one, this one. Really enjoyed this, that with Dean. Yeah, the sacrifices I made, and I'm glad I did. Right. <laughs> You're lucky. Imagine setting me loose on the podcast by myself. <laughs> yeah, that was one. That was the other reason. <laughs> All right, that's it. Thanks for joining us on the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast. Until next time, I've been Daz. I've been Gaz. See you Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. You've just listened to a Speed Cafe Pod Hub production. 